step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. I got an emergency out here on the Highway 31. I don't know if I need you or if I, I need somebody to come out. Uh, uh, and the address is 15519. Ma'am, what's your problem? Uh, my cousin lives next door. Yes. And I think somebody broke in the house and killed her last night. I just went in the house and she looks like she's on the floor. Okay, what, what is your name? My name is Johnny, Johnny Pry. Johnny, I want you to calm down, okay? Okay. Uh, is that P-R-Y-O-R? Right. Okay. one Highway 31 East. Okay, so you I'm did... seven miles from the loop, ma'am. Hold on. Okay. She was there at the house? Yeah, I just opened the door. I got a key to the trail house. Okay, you saw, her, you saw her laying down? Yeah, I opened the door. I didn't try to touch her. I just see her laying down in there. Okay, she's a black female? Right. What is her name? Her name is Eleanor, Eleanor Griffin. Eleanor Griffin? Right. Okay, you didn't you didn't bother her nothing, no, right? She's a black female, right? Right. About how old is she? Uh, I think she's forty-five. About forty-five. She lives by herself. Right. Okay. So we're going out thirty-one east. Right. About how many miles? Seven miles. Seven miles. On the left or the right? On the. Uh, it's on the left side. On the left. Okay. Okay. And. Uh, what type of residence are we going to? It's a, uh, it's the, uh, the house is right, it's a brick and a trailer house on the side. Okay, which one of the house? Okay, but you're in the brick? Right. Okay, are you going to go back over to her residence or you going to stay at yours? I'll stay at mine. Okay. Stay out front. Okay. So I just opened the door because I saw a car parked in the back. Okay. You have any cars out in your yard? Uh, no, but uh, it's a, it's a brick and wrought iron fence. And the, and the number's on the mailbox, 15519. And you'll be out standing on the porch? Yeah, I'll be out there. Okay. Also, stay on the line. I'm going to connect you with EMS, okay? Okay. So they can get somebody started that way. Okay. I need you to be calm for me, okay? Because we're going to get you some help, all right? Okay, I got my next-door neighbor here. I, I didn't go in by myself. Emergency medical service. 
Yes, I need someone to come out. Uh, Highway 31 East, please, uh, 15519. What's the problem, man? I think my cousin uh, lived next door in the trail house. Somebody like to, uh, I just opened the door and the lamp is down. It's like somebody's going to kill Okay. Is she there? Yeah. Your co is your cousin male or female? Uh, she's female. Okay, is she there? Uh, no, she's not here. She's next door in the trail house. Okay, is she breathing? Do you know? I didn't get that close to her. I just opened the door. Okay, EMS. Oh, EMS. Yes. This is the SO on the line. I'm fixing to hang up and get somebody started that way, okay? Okay, ma'am. All right. Thank you. Is path of the conviction of Edward Eights began the night of July 23, 1993. This was the night that Johnny Pryor walked into her cousin Elnora's trailer and found her lying inside dead. Emergency services were dispatched, and the first to arrive on the scene was volunteer fireman Charles Aldridge. Aldridge entered the residence, found Elnora to be obviously deceased, and walked back out the door. Shortly after he exited the house, Smith County deputies Roy Tomlin, Steve Cheney, and Shirley Mallard arrived on the scene. They made a request to dispatch for Detective Jason Waller to report. Waller was the homicide detective in Smith County, and he was needed to process the crime scene. Waller was already on vacation, but he received a page at 8.53 p.m. and responded to the scene. He arrived at 9.08 p.m. It was Jason Waller who conducted the crime scene investigation that night into the early hours of Saturday, July 24th. Upon completing the crime scene investigation, Waller wrote a 12-page report. The report was obviously typed out after the fact, and it's assumed that the procedure was that he dictated his notes into a pocket recorder during the investigation and then later transcribed them into a written report. This report was turned over to us in our most recent open record request from Smith County. And what we have here is a detailed, chronological narrative of Jason Waller's investigation that night. And in today's episode, I'm going to read to you Jason Waller's report, word for word, moment by moment, second by second. We are going to go along the journey of Jason Waller investigating this crime scene. I've cross-referenced this report with all of the crime scene photos that we possess are known to exist. In order to maintain context, every time Waller discusses something in his report where we know that he took a photograph, you'll hear this sound effect. Listen carefully as we move through this night with Waller, and by the end of this episode, I will prove to you that Edward Eights is innocent. On this date at approximately 8.53 p.m., Detective Jason B. Waller was paged to contact the Sheriff's Department's Communication Division. Waller contacted them and was advised that Patrol Division personnel had responded to the scene of an apparent homicide and that they had requested Waller to the scene to begin the investigation into the death. Waller was advised that the deceased was a black female who had been discovered by some friends and neighbors. Waller was advised that the patrol sergeant, Roy Tomlin, and deputies Shirley Mallard and Steve Cheney were at the scene and that it had been secured for Waller. Waller was also advised that the scene was located at a mobile home on the north side of Highway 31, approximately seven miles east of Tyler's Loop 323. Waller processed the crime scene, arriving there at approximately 9.08 p.m. Okay. 
Upon arrival, Waller found Tomlin, Mallard, and Cheney outside of the scene, which had been surrounded by barrier tape. Waller also observed several people also outside the residence, just to the east of the scene, who Waller later learned were neighbors and friends of the deceased. Waller was advised that the deceased was identified as Elnora Hunter Griffin, a black female, born 3-1946, age 47, who lived alone in the rented mobile home. Waller learned that she rented the residence from the next-door neighbor, Johnny Pryor, a black female born 525-36, who had discovered the deceased body. Waller was advised that the deceased had been located lying face down in the living room and that she was found to be nude. Waller learned that the deceased had not shown up for work on this day at the University of Texas Health Center and that Pryor had seen the deceased car parked behind her mobile home this evening. Pryor went over to the residence, knocking on the door, but getting no answer. Pryor also had advised that she had found the door locked. Pryor had another neighbor, Margie Dews, who lives just east of Miss Pryor. To come to the deceased residence and using a pass key, Pryor stepped in, finding the deceased on the living room floor. Waller also was advised that emergency medical personnel had been called to the scene, but quickly determined that Griffin was deceased and left without disturbing the scene. Waller was advised by Tomlin that when he arrived on the scene, he found two black males standing on the deceased front porch. Waller later learned that these two subjects were identified as Edward Lewis Eights, born 1127-65, and his brother, Kelvin Eights, born 10-4-69, who lived with their grandmother, Mrs. Dews. Tomlin asked the two subjects to step away and contact the uniformed deputies that were arriving at the scene. Tomlin advised that he stepped into the residence and found the deceased nude, lying on her stomach, with what he believed to be a large wound to the neck-throat area. Waller then began his preliminary examination of the scene. Waller examined the exterior area of the front door, which is a raised patio porch area leading to the front door. The front door is a metal door that is typically found in this type of a residence. Waller also observed that there was also a glass storm door on the exterior side of the entrance. An examination of this entrance showed no sign of forced entry or tampering. Waller also observed the rest of the exterior of the residence, which Waller found to be a gray with white trim residence. Waller found that except for a very small back bathroom window that was open, but had its screen intact, the remaining windows and rear door were locked and also showed no signs of forced entry or tampering. Waller also observed that on the north side of the resident, toward the east end, there was a white 1989 Mercury four-door vehicle bearing Texas license plate number 505YRZ. Waller later learned that this vehicle belongs to the deceased. Waller also learned that this vehicle was not easily observed from the front area of the residence, from the driveway of Pryor's residence, or from the highway. Waller also found that the vehicle was unlocked, but no keys were found in the ignition. Waller then entered the residence, noting that the storm door opens outward from right to left, while the interior door opens inward, also right to left. Once inside, Waller observed that the doorway enters into the living room area, just adjacent to the master bedroom. Waller observed that just to the right of the doorway was the doorway to this bedroom. Waller would also learn that this was the only furnished bedroom in the residence. Waller noted that the entrance into the residence was located toward the east end of the living room, on the south side of the residence. 
Waller observed that in the living room, directly across from the doorway, was a small table, and that just adjacent to the left, that there were several curtain rods and a lamp that were laying on the carpeted living room floor. Waller could also observe the dust ring on the small table that was consistent with the shape and size of the base of the overturned lamp. As Waller continued to observe the living room, Waller found it to be moderately furnished. Continuing from the right side of the room, Waller observed a fold-out lounge-type chair, which was dark green in color. It was located just behind the small table, between the table and the fireplace in the living room. Waller observed a large oval coffee table with a white and blue braided rug, which Waller observed to be torn in several places, to be near the center of the room. Waller observed that the deceased was just to the south of this table, between the table and the sofa, which Waller located along the southern wall of the living room. Waller observed that the braided rug was torn or pulled apart, and that part of it was caught by the northwestern leg of this table, with the main portion of the rug laying toward and between the deceased legs and the south side and east end of the table. Waller observed that the interior door had a diamond-shaped window in it, which had a small, light pink bath towel covering the window. Upon closer examination, Waller found that this towel had been nailed to the door and used to cover the window this way. Waller later determined that the nails used to secure the towel to door were the same type of nails that Waller found to be with the two curtain rod mounts that were found just below the curtain rod holders had apparently been removed from the door and that the ones found on the floor were most likely from the door. See photographs and evidence items number four through number seven. Waller observed that also on the floor, near the overturned lamp and three curtain rods, that there was a small brass candy dish and several pieces of cellophane-wrapped peppermint candies. Waller observed that the sofa was, for the most part, unremarkable, except for the transferred blood stains located in the area where the deceased head was located. Waller did observe and note that toward the east end of the sofa, lying on the floor, was a small pink throw pillow. Waller examined this pillow and observed a dark brown to blackish-colored substance on the pillow's exterior. Evidence item number eight. Waller observed that the large oval coffee table was positioned at an angle of northwest to southeast in the living room. Waller also observed another brass candy dish with peppermint candies and some small batteries. Waller noted that the oval-shaped white and blue braided rug, which had been torn apart in places, appeared to have been caught under the table and was possibly torn during a possible struggle between the deceased and her attacker or attackers. Waller also noted that the deceased legs were spread apart and positioned with the right foot resting partially under the coffee table, while the left foot and leg was observed to be just to the outside of the table. Waller observed also in the living room a television and stereo, which were located on a small television stand in the northwest corner of the room, just in front of a built-in bookshelf area. Waller also observed a window-mounted air conditioner in the north side windows of the living room. Waller noted that the air conditioner was not on when he entered the residence. Waller noted other objects in the room, such as a reddish-brown cushion chair, plant stand and plant, and other objects consistent with being found in a living room area. Additional descriptions of this room and the deceased will follow in this report. Waller then observed the residence bedroom area, which was located on the east end of the residence. 
Waller observed that the door to this room opened from left to right and inward, but was apparently continuously opened as there was an object holding the door in the open position. Waller observed that this room was nicely furnished with what appeared to be a matching bedroom suite. The furniture included as dresser, vanity and chair, a folded queen-size bed, two nightstands, and a black bookshelf. Waller also noted that there was a small walk-in closet located in the southeast corner of the bedroom, while the master bathroom was located to the north of the closet, also on the east end of the residence adjacent to the bedroom. Waller observed that this room was in great disarray, with not only the bed covering laying mostly off the bed, but that the mattress itself was displaced. Waller observed that the mattress was moved away from the headboard toward the north side of the bed, while the bed coverings, which included the top sheet and a reversible white and dark blue flowered pattern comforter, was laying to the south side of the bed about the floor area. Waller observed that just inside the doorway to the left was one of the two nightstands. Waller observed a clock radio alarm, a decorative basket, and a telephone setting on top of this nightstand, all items that would be consistently found on a nightstand. Waller also noted that just below this nightstand, Waller found another telephone, which was a wall mount type telephone, which Waller found to have a long receiver cord. Waller also observed that the wire that plugged into the wall had been stripped of its plug and connection. It appeared to Waller that the wire had been pulled away out of the wall socket. On the bedroom floor, just below the dresser and to the right of the bed area, Waller observed a pair of white cotton women's panties. Evidence item number two. Waller observed that on top of the dresser, there were numerous cosmetic-related items, jewelry, and other items typically found on such an item of furniture. Waller did note that on the west end of the dresser were several religious-related materials, including a Bible that was open. Waller observed that the Bible had been opened to the book of Isaiah, with parts of chapters 40 and 41 on the open pages. Waller then observed the bed area closer. Waller noted that the bed was furnished with light green bed sheets and with a reversible white and dark blue flowered pattern comforter, with the white pattern apparently being positioned at the top, exposed side. Waller observed and noted a dried dark brown stain area on the top side of the comforter. Upon closer examination of this area, Waller believed the stain to be dried feces, waste product. This determination was based on the odor and the texture of the stained substance. See photographs and evidence item number 10. As a sidebar here, this appears to be pretty conclusive evidence that the stain that we were looking at on the mattress was in fact not the semen stain, which to be honest is kind of a relief. The coloration of that stain was really disturbing. According to Waller, he actually smelled the stain and it was feces, but we'll get back to that later. Waller observed that also on other portions of the comforter were other similar stains also believed to be feces. Waller observed that the vanity and the items on top were consistent with the place of furniture and found the accompanying chair was leaning backwards and was only stopped by its being caught under the vanity from falling over backwards. Waller noted that there were several items of clothing laying over the back of the chair. On the opposite side of the bed, Waller found the bed's pillow shams and other related items, including the other nightstand. Waller found nothing else remarkable about this area. In the northeast corner of the bedroom, behind the open bathroom door, Waller found a small bookshelf positioned in this corner. 
Waller noted several religious compact CDs on one of the shelves, and then on top of the shelf was a portable stereo, which Waller found to be in the on position. Waller found nothing else remarkable about this area. Waller also found on the bedroom floor, just at the end of the bed and adjacent to the entrance of the bathroom, a dark pink piece of cloth, which Waller later determined was a curtain tieback. Waller also later learned that this tieback went with the curtain that had been over the front door window, where the light pink towel was found to be nailed. Evidence item number 11. Waller observed the bedroom's closet and found nothing remarkable about it. Waller also noted an orange piece of paper laying in the floor with handwriting notes on it, but found nothing remarkable about it and nothing related to the deceased's death. As with the living room, Waller will further describe this room area further in this report. Waller then observed the master bathroom area. Waller noted that it was a typical bathroom, with a shower, bathtub, sink, and vanity, and toilet. Waller noted that the toilet seat cover was in the up position, but that the seat itself was in the down position. Waller also noted that a two-level metal towel rack that was located just inside and to the left of the doorway had been pulled from the wall. The damage appeared to be somewhat fresh, as the area around where the bracket was mounted showed no signs of wear. Waller also noted that there were no towels or washcloth rags on this rack. While on a similar rack adjacent to the sink area, Waller found a small pink washcloth. Waller noted that this washcloth rag was similar in color to the towel found nailed over the front door's window. Waller also noted that there was a hair on the toilet seat, which Waller would later recover as potential evidence. Evidence item number 24. While examining the scene, Waller requested the assistance of Detective Melody McKay and Dale Huckel at the crime scene, as there were several potential witnesses that needed to be interviewed and obtained statements from. Waller also requested Deputy Mallard to begin this process and obtain preliminary written statements from some of these witnesses who had come to the scene. Waller also contacted Captain Bobby Garman, who had responded to assist at the scene if needed. Waller requested Garman to assist outside the scene and to coordinate an exterior search of the scene, handle any family and media that may come to the scene, and other miscellaneous requests that Waller may have had at the scene. Waller learned that the deceased had been last contacted at approximately 10 p.m. the previous night, July 22nd, when a friend, Kubia Jackson, had called the deceased. Waller was advised that the deceased had told Jackson that she was visiting with a subject named Edward Lewis, who later determined to be Edward Lewis Eights, who lived two houses east of the scene. Up until this point, everything seems pretty straightforward. Waller is conducting a routine crime scene investigation. You can tell when you compare his report to the pictures that he's documenting everything step by step as he goes along. Everything he looks at, he takes photos of. We're going to take a quick break here for the ad, and when we return, we're going to continue along the journey of Jason Waller investigating this crime scene. When we do that, I want you to pay very close attention to when you hear the camera clicks. Note the habits of Waller, when he takes photos, and what he takes photos of. And listen for the moments where we are led to believe by this open records request, where Waller didn't bother to take any photos. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Waller also requested that the appropriate justice of the peace be notified to respond to the scene in order to hold an inquest. Waller learned that Smith County Precinct No. 4 Justice of the Peace, Judge Mitch Schomberger, had been notified and was en route to the scene. Judge Schomberger arrived at the scene at approximately 9.50 p.m., followed by Detectives Huckel and McKay, who both arrived at the scene shortly after Schomberger. All three were briefed on what Waller had observed so far and that Waller was continuing his examination of the scene. Waller advised McKay that there was a possibility of a sexual assault having taken place, as the deceased had been found in the nude, and that the bed and bedroom was in such disarray. Waller next began to examine the kitchen-dining room area of the residence. Waller found this area to be a rather small area, in which Waller found the typical items found in a kitchen, including a stove oven, dishwasher, microwave, coffee maker, refrigerator, and other typical related items. Waller noted that the kitchen was located on the southern side, while the dining area, where there was a dining table and two chairs, were located on the north side of the room. Waller observed that on the stove, there were two covered cooking containers, a pot located on the front left burner, and a frying pan, which is located on the front right burner. Waller also noted that there was a tea kettle, which was found on the back left burner. Waller also observed that the stove and oven's dials were all in the off position, and Waller found no other signs of them being on. Waller removed the covers of the two dishes and found that the pot contained white rice, while the frying pan contained what appeared to be baked chicken and sauce mixture. Both were found to be cold to the touch. Waller noted that there was only a trace of coffee in the bottom of the coffee maker, which Waller also found to be off. Waller found that while the right side of the sink appeared to be clean, the left side had a plastic wash tub in it, which Waller noted contained dirty water, which still had some signs of soap suds. Waller also noted that in the wash tub, there was a single plate and other utensils that apparently been used to eat with. Waller also noted a spoon just to the left of the sink, between the sink and the frying pan, which had a substance on it consistent with having been used to serve the chicken mixture. The plate also shows remnants of this meal. Waller also noted a piece of white paper towel laying on the west side of the kitchen counter, along with a textured drinking glass. Waller observed that there were some type of stains on the piece of paper towel. Evidence item number 25. Waller also examined the dishwasher, microwave, refrigerator, and freezer contents and found nothing remarkable about them. Waller also observed and examined a stain that was located on the tile floor of the kitchen area. Upon closer examination, this stain appeared to possibly be a shoe print and that the print appeared to be consistent with the substance Waller had found in other areas of the residence, mainly the bedroom area, and on the small pink pillow, that being feces. 
Waller found this stained print to be just adjacent to the stove and dining table and only a few feet from the deceased's head. Waller also examined the dining table and found the two chairs appeared to be pulled away from the table as if somebody had been sitting in them and had returned them to their positions under the table. Waller observed numerous items on the table that led Waller to believe that the deceased was probably paying her bills or doing some similar type of work there. Waller also observed that on the kitchen wall, just adjacent to the westernmost of the two chairs and to the right of the refrigerator, was a wall mount plate and connection for a wall mount telephone. Upon closer examination, Waller observed that the male portion of this connection was still in the female portion of the connection and that it appeared that this is the location where the second telephone found in the bedroom was originally positioned. Waller then examined the area surrounding where the small bar area was located, which was from the northern wall and separated the living room and the dining area. Waller observed in the area of the south end of the bar and the tiled floor just to the west of it, Waller noted that there were signs of what Waller determined to be blood spatters. Waller observed that there was not a great deal of blood in these spatters and that they could possibly be cast-off spatters. Waller also noted that the deceased head and neck area was only a few feet from this area. Waller also noted two spots of blood just above this cast-off pattern and several blood drops spatters on the tile floor area, around the bar area, and the legs of the dining table chair that was located by the bar. Waller also later measured the height of these patterns as follows. The two spots of blood were measured to be approximately 17 and a half inches and 17 and three quarters inches above the floor from left to right. The spatter, possible cast-off pattern, was measured to be approximately six inches to 10 inches, also from left to right. Waller also later recovered a sample of these blood spatters for evidence. Evidence items number 27 and 28. Waller learned that Detective Huckel had requested Edward Aits and his grandmother to come down to the Sheriff's Department for additional questioning. Due to the fact that Aits had been visiting the deceased as late as 10 p.m. the night of July 22nd, Waller learned that Huckel was en route to the Sheriff's Department at approximately 10.25 p.m. as Huckel was to use Waller's office for his interviews. It's important to note here that according to this report, Waller confirms what Huckel says in that the interview took place in Waller's office and not in Huckel's. Waller continued his examination of the scene and examined a trash can found in the hallway between the dining room kitchen area and the back door of the residence. Waller found nothing remarkable in the contents of the trash can except for another paper towel that was stained, which Waller removed as evidence. Evidence item 26. Waller examined the hallway area of the residence and found a washing machine and dryer in this area. Waller also examined the back door of the residence and found no signs of tampering or forced entry. Waller observed that in this area, which led to a second bedroom, which Waller later observed as being used as a storage and office area, that there was an additional bathroom. Waller observed that on the east side of the doorway to this bathroom was the dryer, while the washing machine was located on the west side of the doorway. Waller examined these areas and found nothing remarkable about the area where the washer was located. Waller did observe and locate a small chrome-plated hammer laying on some newspapers that were on top of the dryer. Waller also observed and located in a plastic clothes basket a dark pink window curtain, which was the same pattern as the tieback that Waller had located in the master bedroom floor. Evidence item number 14 and 15. Waller then examined the rear bathroom of this residence. 
Waller find this room to be similar to the other bathroom, only smaller in size. Waller noted that on the top of the toilet tank was an open pack of Salem cigarettes and an ashtray which had two cigarette butts, ashes, and a burned match in it. Evidence items number 16 and 17. Waller was initially advised that the deceased did not smoke, but later was advised that she would smoke some and would do this in this bathroom, blowing the smoke out the small window, which Waller noted was the only window in the house that was opened. Waller also noted that both the toilet seat cover and the seat were in the up position, leading Waller to believe that a male subject may have used this toilet last. Waller also noted several hairs on and around the toilet seat area. Evidence item number 42. Waller also noted the contents of a small trash can in this bathroom, in which Waller found nothing remarkable, except noting that there was a Jolly Rancher candy wrapper in this trash can, which Waller also found to be unremarkable at the time. Now it's important to point out here that that last statement was written in the past tense, which means this report was written after the fact. After Waller determined that a Jolly Rancher wrapper found in that trash can was not unremarkable. Waller also observed a white woven blanket that was laying in the floor of the bathroom, just to the right of the toilet. It was also later recovered as evidence. Evidence item number 13. Waller then examined the western end of the residence, which the deceased apparently used as a storage room and office area, as Waller found a computer system, typewriter, office desk, and other related items. Waller found nothing remarkable about this room other than it was somewhat messy but did not appear to be an area where a struggle had taken place. As added context, Waller testified at trial that he never actually searched that room for any evidence. After conferring with Judge Schomburger, who also examined the scene with investigators, Schomburger ordered a post-mortem examination, autopsy, to be performed. As local forensic pathologist was not available, Schomburger advised to make arrangements to have the deceased transported to the Southwestern Institute of Forensic Sciences in Dallas for the autopsy. Schomburger advised to notify them when Waller was ready to have the deceased body removed from the crime scene. Waller also began to process several of the areas of the residence for latent fingerprints. Waller located several possible latents on several items, including the coffee table, the telephone torn from the wall, the front door area, the front window area, the toilet seats and lids of the bathrooms. Waller also contacted and requested the assistance of the Tyler Police Department's Technical Services Unit, Crime Scene, in order to use their laser device to locate additional possible latents. Connie Castle, an investigator from the police department, arrived to assist. It was learned that while trying to start up the laser, that it was apparently malfunctioning and was unable to be used. Waller was able to retrieve several latents using the conventional powder and dusting method. Waller then continued his examination of the scene, going back to the master bedroom, where he had began to collect items of potential evidence. Waller collected, by hand, several hairs and or fibers that were visible to him on the white side of the bed's comforter. Evidence item number one. Waller retrieved the comforter, evidence item number ten, as evidence, and was able to observe what was underneath this item. Waller observed that under the comforter that there was a stained area on the carpeted floor of the bedroom, which also appeared to be the same substance found on the comforter, and also later on a light green pillowcase with pillow inside. Evidence item number 9. 
Waller also observed and retrieved a white woman's house coat that was located on the bedroom floor near the end of the left side south of the bed, which had been hidden by the comforter. Waller also later retrieved this item and observed that it was somewhat stained. In order to preserve possible hair and fiber evidence, Waller did not examine the items recovered in detail in order to not lose this potential evidence. Evidence item number 18. Waller then recovered visible hairs from the top sheet of the bed and also from the fitted sheet that was on the bed's mattress. Waller also recovered both sheets as potential evidence. Evidence items number 19 through 22. Waller also observed and retrieved an extremely tiny chip of red which appeared to be a chip of a painted finger or toenail. Evidence number 23. This item was recovered from the fitted sheet near the end of the bed. Waller also recovered a portion of the stain from the bedroom floor believed to be feces, which appeared that someone had stepped in this area of the stain, as it was spread around somewhat on the carpet. Waller also recovered a sample of the carpet from an area near the stain. Evidence items numbers 29 and 30. Waller also recovered the hair from the master bathroom toilet seat and attempted to locate other hairs, but found none. Waller also recovered the AT&T wall mount telephone from the master bedroom after dusting it for latent fingerprints. Evidence item number 35. Waller then returned to the living room area where conducted a more in-depth examination of the deceased's body. Waller observed that the deceased was a rather proportionate woman and was rather thin in build. Waller observed that she was wearing a small gold bracelet around her left ankle and that it appeared that she had on a gold ring on her number four digit right ring finger. Waller observed that the deceased body was lying prone on her anterior side with her head positioned towards the southwest and her feet and legs toward the northeast. Waller noted that there was a large pillow with a pink-colored pillowcase that was positioned under the deceased's upper torso, with her head resting on it also. Waller noted that the pillow was positioned lengthways under the deceased's body and that it was extremely bloody. Waller also noted that the deceased's right arm was folded up and positioned with her hand just under the right side of her chin. Waller also observed that her left arm was also folded up and positioned in a similar manner under her left side along the edge of the pillow. Waller observed that in the area of the deceased buttocks and anal area that there appeared to be signs of what Waller also recognized as feces, which had apparently dried. Waller also noted that the deceased's legs were spread apart with a distance between her feet being measured to be approximately 3 feet. They were spread far enough apart where Waller could easily view the deceased vagina and lower pubic area. Waller also noted that there were some dried spots of blood in the area of the deceased left leg, especially the outer side of the leg, while there was some dried blood around the deceased outer right hip area. Waller also noted that there was what appeared to be some abrasions on the deceased lower right back, which were diagonal in position. Waller also observed some marks on the center of the deceased back, along with dried blood, which was greater on the upper right shoulder area than on the left shoulder area. Waller then examined the deceased neck and throat area while the deceased was still on her anterior side. Waller observed that the deceased had at least one major laceration, cut, to her neck-throat area, which Waller believed to be extremely deep into the neck cavity. 
Waller observed that the wound appeared to be somewhat jagged, but a closer examination of the post-mortem examination will determine the length, depth, and shape of the wound. Waller also noted that the deceased's head was positioned almost flush with the lower edge of the sofa near the west end of the sofa. Waller later examined the deceased using a blacklight in order to examine for possible signs of semen stains, hair, and or fiber evidence. Waller failed to observe any obvious indications of semen stains on the deceased's posterior side, but did collect a small chip of what was believed to be a finger or toenail chip with red paint on it, similar to others observed in the living room area, which were also collected. This chip was located on the deceased buttocks. Evidence items number 12, 31, 32, and 33. Before we move on, I want to make a quick sidebar here. I want to repeat back to you what Jason Waller wrote in the beginning of this paragraph. Waller later examined the deceased using a black light in order to examine for possible signs of semen stains, hair and or fiber evidence. Waller failed to observe any obvious indications of semen stains on the deceased's posterior side. So Waller is saying here that they used a black light and found no semen on Elnora's posterior side. But remember, Waller wasn't examining this crime scene alone. Melody McKay was right there with him. Let me read to you from Melody McKay's trial testimony. This is at trial two. Question. Did you find anything about the body to lead you to believe that she had been sexually assaulted? McKay's answer. Under the black light that we used out there, we did find a stain that reacted to the black light. Question. Where at? Answer. Around the buttocks area. Question. Which would be consistent with spermatozoa? Answer. It's a possibility. Later on in her testimony. Question. Now you've testified that there was a substance that came up on her buttocks that resembled under the light semen, correct? Answer. It reacted that way, yes sir. Now it's important to note here that neither Jason Waller nor Melody McKay had the ability to test that stain to determine if it actually was sperm. All they can do is use the black light, and if they find something that looks like it could be semen, they would swab it and collect it as evidence. Now, McKay clearly testifies that the black light did indicate that there was semen on her buttocks, while Waller's report says that they found no indications of semen on her buttocks. But here's the rub. We don't know if they actually took a swab of that stain to collect it as evidence, because one thing that was conveniently left out of the open records request was Melody McKay's report. We know that she did indeed write a report. All of the officers did. Even the officers that just cordoned off the crime scene had to write a report. At trial, McKay is asked about her report, and she confirms that she did write one. And in her open records request, we have a page that lists discovery items, and on that page it reads, See Attached Supplemental Report for Melody McKay. So we know without question that Melody McKay did indeed write a report. We also know without question that the prosecution had a copy of Melody McKay's report. But we have a massive conflict between Melody McKay's testimony and Jason Waller's testimony in this report. McKay's report is the other half of this equation, and we don't have it to compare to Waller's. But for now, I digress. Moving on. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Waller also observed abrasions on the deceased's left hip buttock area, her right shoulder area, and later on her knees. Waller then turned the deceased over onto her back, where he could photograph and examine the anterior side of the deceased's body. Waller observed that the laceration to the deceased's neck-throat area was indeed extremely deep and jagged, at least on the left side of her neck-throat. Waller also noted that the deceased had on a small gold ring on her number 10 digit, or the left little ring finger. Waller observed that the deceased's right knee had a rather large abrasion on it. Waller also examined the deceased's anterior side and failed to observe any obvious indications of semen samples while using the blacklight. Waller also recovered as evidence two knives that were found in one of the drawers in the kitchen. Neither of these knives appeared to have any obvious signs of blood on them, but they were taken for submission to the crime laboratory. Waller also took as potential evidence the deceased's phone-mate answering machine's greeting and message tapes. Evidence items number 36, 37, 38, and 39. Waller also confiscated a white washcloth that was located outside the residence near the southeast corner of the residence as potential evidence. Evidence item number 40. Waller also collected by hand numerous fibers and hairs from the bedroom and living room carpet areas. They were collected from the area around the deceased and also the area around the feces matter on the bedroom carpet. Evidence items number 43 and 44. After the evidence was collected, the deceased was then removed from the scene and transported to the Southwestern Institute of Forensic Science in Dallas for the post-mortem examination. Prior to being transported, Waller placed brown paper bags over the deceased's hands in order to protect any possible trace evidence that may be on her hands or under her fingernails. Waller also briefed the Southwest Institute of Forensic Science field agent's office of the incident and requested that a sexual assault evidence kit be performed and photographs taken of the deceased injuries. Waller also advised Swifts of the fecal matter found around the scene and on the deceased anal area. Detective Huckel had returned to the scene while Waller continued to examine the scene. Upon his return, he briefed Waller and McKay on his interview with Edward Ates. While Waller and McKay briefed Huckel on the events, evidence, and other aspects of the scene and the evidence located and collected. It had been decided that Detectives Huckel and McKay would take the lead investigation duties in this case, as Waller was going to be out of town for the following three weeks, starting on the 25th of July. Waller advised Huckel and McKay that he would be available to process and collect any additional evidence and or scene for them up to midnight on the 25th. Waller, Huckel, and McKay then continued to evaluate the scene more. Waller then went outside and processed the deceased 1989 Mercury four-door vehicle, but was unable to locate or retrieve any usable latents at that time. Waller did note that the driver's door was unlocked and a search of the vehicle failed to produce any additional evidence or the keys of the vehicle or the residence.
Waller did note that there were several cellophane candy wrappers in the vehicle's ashtray. During the examination of the scene, Waller was unable to locate the deceased purse, billfold, or other items such as her checkbook, credit cards, identification, or any amount of cash. A search by both Waller, Huckel, McKay, and other officers, both inside and outside areas surrounding the residence, also failed to produce a possible weapon used to cause the severe laceration to the deceased neck-throat area. After approximately 10 hours at the scene, it was secured by Waller and the other officers. It was decided that due to the all-night investigation that Waller, McKay, and Huckel would get some sleep and return to their office around noon to begin a re-evaluation of the information known so far and to also continue the investigative leads that they had in the case. Waller secured the scene at approximately 7 a.m. on Saturday morning, July 24, 1993. Waller returned to his office where he secured numerous items of evidence collected from the crime scene. Case investigation continues with Waller assisting Huckel and McKay. On this date, after getting a few hours of rest, Waller returned to his office where he began the task of beginning the paperwork and evidence processing in the case. Waller, Huckel, and McKay all met and conferenced about the investigation and further met with Smith County's Chief Felony Prosecutor David Dobbs on the case investigation. Waller also prepared paperwork and several items of case evidence to be transported by McKay to the Texas Department of Public Safety's Criminal Laboratory in Garland, Texas. These items included items number, and it lists several illegible item numbers, Waller and the other investigators also returned to the scene where they met with several members of the deceased family who had come into town and had come to the scene. Waller, Huckel, and McKay also conducted additional searches for additional evidence, particularly the exterior area surrounding and adjacent to the scene. For context's sake, at this point, the family had been inside of Elnora's trailer for about five hours. And this is also the trip where Detective Huckel went inside of Ed's bedroom to look for evidence. The report continues. Waller also recovered a Jolly Rancher candy wrapper, which he had observed earlier during the initial search of the scene, collecting it as evidence. We have no photo of this item of evidence being collected. Case investigation continues. Waller's last report is dated the 25th of July. That would be this Sunday. On this date, Waller, who was preparing to be off duty for a period of three weeks, again returned to the scene and examined various aspects of it for several more hours. The scene, which had been released to the deceased family members, had had its contents removed by her family by this time. This was done for the protection of her property from looters and thieves. Waller again both examined the interior and exterior of the scene, but failed to obtain any additional evidence in the case investigation. This case's investigation is being led by Detectives Huckel and McKay, with Waller assisting as needed. Case investigation continues. It was at the end of this day when Waller left to go out of town for three weeks. These are all the reports that he created the weekend Elnora's body was found. You have heard many clues throughout this episode as to why I told you that I can prove to you that Edward Ates is innocent. And now I'll explain to you what happened. There were four items of physical evidence that tied Edward Ates to the crime scene and led to his conviction of the murder of Elnora Griffin. Item number one, the scraping taken from the bottom of his shoe during his interview the night Elnora's body was found. 
FBI agent Richard Ream conducted the test on the scraping and determined that it was positive for human protein. What we know about that test is that it was clearly flawed. The control in the test, the scraping of known feces from the crime scene, reacted negatively for human protein. The control failed the test. It was never established that the scraping was actually feces at all. And I have since learned that FBI agent Richard Ream has been responsible for multiple convictions being overturned. Anonymous sources have told me that he is what is referred to as a state's whore. In one decision that I read, a conviction was overturned because he bolstered the evidence in order to improve the state's case. That case was out of Florida, and the same is true of another case out of Ohio. The scientific method used in this evidence in general is completely invalid. The second item of physical evidence used to convict Ed was a supposed handprint found on the towel covering the window on the front door. You'll note that there was not one mention of any handprint in Jason Waller's entire report, not one photo taken of it. Remember that Huckel, Waller, and McKay all have different stories as to when they found this handprint on the towel. Huckel and Waller's stories vary from the night they were investigating the crime scene to the next day but neither of them noted in their report, nor was there a picture taken. Melody McKay testified that they found the handprint a week later, on the following Thursday. But her report is conveniently missing from this open records request. And also, she testified that Jason Waller was there when they found the print on that Thursday. But we know that Jason Waller was out of town at the time. But none of this is new information to us. There's clearly no evidence that either of these items are valid. But we have to rely on speculation. But now, that is not true of the other two items of physical evidence. Let's start with the Jolly Rancher wrappers. This was significant. Remember when I interviewed the jury foreman from this case? He said that still to this day, he can't go to a store and see Jolly Ranchers on the shelf and not think of this case because he believed that it was a significant piece of evidence that Jolly Rancher wrappers were found both in the trash can in Waller's office and in the trash can on the crime scene. But were they really? Two pieces of physical evidence that alone mean nothing, but together meant everything at trial. Let's start with the wrapper that was found in the trash can in Waller's office. According to the state's theory of the case, Waller saw the Jolly Rancher wrapper in the trash can on the crime scene the night he was investigating. He went back to his office, found one in the trash can in his office, and then realized the one on the crime scene was significant and went back and collected it. But what's missing from his report? He notes every move that he made during this investigation throughout that entire weekend. He noted when he slept. He noted when he made a phone call. He noted when he returned to the office. He noted what he did when he got to the office. And when he left. But you know what he never noted in any of these three reports for the entire weekend? 
that he had found a Jolly Rancher wrapper in the trash can of his office. The first appearance we have of this story comes in February when Dale Huckel wrote his bullshit supplemental report. But now let's look at the other half of this story. The Jolly Rancher wrapper that was found in the trash can of the guest bedroom of Elnora's trailer. Remember this moment in Waller's investigation. Waller also noted the contents of a small trash can in this bathroom, in which Waller found nothing remarkable, except noting that there was a Jolly Rancher candy wrapper in this trash can, which Waller also found to be unremarkable at the time. Smith County made a mistake when they turned over the pictures that Waller took here while examining the bathroom. In one of the photos in this new open records request, we have an image taken straight down into that trash can. The trash can only has a few items in it. A used roll of toilet paper, a wadded up Kleenex, a matchstick, and something that looks similar to a playing card. But there's one thing that is clearly and obviously not in this trash can. A Jolly Rancher wrapper. We have clear photographic proof that the Jolly Rancher wrapper that was supposedly collected from this trash can the day after the crime scene was turned over to the family was not in that trash can the night Waller investigated the scene. And furthermore, his noting in his report that he had seen the Jolly Rancher wrapper in there that night is a lie. Even if they try to make the argument that the wrapper was further down in the trash, it doesn't hold up. Like I mentioned, there are only four or five items in this can. You can see the bottom of the trash can in a few places. And if that Jolly Rancher wrapper was buried underneath this stuff, it was put there long before the time of the murder. Another photo of the bathroom shows that the toilet paper roll that was on the holder at the time was about half gone. Which means that the roll that is in the trash can was put there well before the time of the murder, and therefore anything underneath it was also put there well before the time of the murder. And as sickening and disturbing as this is, it doesn't end there. The final piece of physical evidence that supposedly tied Edward Eights to the crime scene and the murder of Elnora was the fact that on the night Waller processed the crime scene, the seat in Elnora's 1989 Mercury Tracer four-door hatchback was pushed all the way back. You might have noticed that during the narration of Waller processing the car, you didn't hear any camera clicks. The reason for that is there were no photos of Elnora's car turned over in discovery, or used at trial, or handed over to us in our open records request. You heard throughout this episode Waller's method for taking photos. Everything that he talked about, we have photos of. Whether he collected it into evidence, or just observed it, he took a photo. But we don't have one single photo of this car from that night other than the click you heard at the very beginning of the episode when he noted that the car was pulled way back behind the trailer where it wasn't normally positioned. That is the only photo that we had. Also note that in the entire report throughout the entire weekend, 
Waller never said anything about the car seat being pushed back. But in this open records request, we did get a few more photos of the car. But those photos were taken days later after the car had already been moved. When examining these photos and comparing them to the one photo that we have of the car on the crime scene the night Elnora's body was found, I noticed something. The original photo meant nothing. It's taken from about 20 feet behind and to the right of the car at about a 45 degree angle. You can see the headrest of the driver's seat in this photo, but we had nothing to compare its perspective to to determine the location of the seat. But in these new photos, the car seat is pushed back. And what we can see is the relationship of the headrest compared to the B post of the car. The B post is the post that goes between the front door and the back door. It's where the back door hinges and the front door latches. And what I noticed was, when the seat was pushed all the way back, the back of the headrest was about 8 to 10 inches behind the B post. But in that photo we had taken at that 45 degree angle from behind the car, the headrest is in front of the B post. It appeared that there was a significant difference in the position of the seat in the two photos. A photogrammetry expert looked at the photo and believed the seat was indeed further back in the second picture, but the only way to be sure would be to find a 1989 Mercury Tracer four-door hatchback. Thanks to the help of all of you through social media, I was able to do just that. Last night, a listener put me in contact with a gentleman from Tennessee who was selling this exact model of car. I got on the phone with the man, and he agreed to help me this morning to recreate this photo. On the website, under case documents, you'll see a side-by-side -side photograph. The photo on the right is the one taken at the crime scene that night. And the photo on the left is the one that this gentleman from Tennessee took for me this morning. And what you'll see when you go look at these photos is that the only way that he was able to recreate the photo that we have in evidence, the photo taken of Elnora's car the night her body was found, was for him to move the driver's seat all the way forward. The night Elnora Griffin's body was found, not only was her seat not pushed all the way back, but it was in fact as far forward as it could possibly go. And not only does that mean that Detective Huckel and Detective Waller lied at trial when they said it was all the way back the night they processed the car, but I don't believe that it is even physically possible for Edward Aids to have driven that car. The man who took the photographs for me said that he is six foot one, and with the seat all the way forward, he said that he could not even get into the car without banging his knees against the dashboard and he is six inches shorter than Edward Eights. Not only are the actions of these detectives horrible and despicable and a disgrace to the badge, but they used and abused their power to convict an innocent man. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Executive producer is Mike Bussing. Intro music was To the Top by Score Squad. 
All other music was created by Shane Yoder. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. And I want to announce that for this week's Friday follow-up, we will not be taking phone calls. We will be recording this week's follow-up this Wednesday night, the 18th at 7.30 p.m. live at the Buffalo Wild Wings in Cedar Hill, Texas. This will be a meet and greet. And like I said, we will also be miking people up. And for this week's follow-up episode, we'll be taking live questions from the people that show up at the meetup. So again, that's this Wednesday night, the 18th, at the Buffalo Wild Wings in Cedar Hill, Texas, 7.30 p.m. local time. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send your new cases into cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been... Truth and Justice.